Hey friends, welcome to Naked in Truth, the podcast that's designed to open up your mind, to help you break down walls and barriers in your life that you might not even know exist yet. But don't worry, every wall that we break down together on this podcast allows you the opportunity to level up and create your impact. With that being said, I think it's time for us to get honest, vulnerable, and naked in truth. Welcome back to the Naked in Truth podcast. It is me, Sari D, and I am back today with a very special topic that is going to hit us in a lot of different ways. So I know that many of us feel like we're not enough. We feel like our bodies aren't enough. We feel like we aren't enough in our relationships. We feel like we aren't enough as parents. And I am so excited to have Marcy Warhaft here with us today, and she is going to be going over her personal story of being victim to not feeling enough, going through some really hard times, sometimes that were so hard that she didn't think that she was going to make it through, but she did, and she is here to tell us that story and her victory at the end and how she is helping so many different people. So Marcy, can you say hi to our listeners and let us know how your day is going today? Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm actually away uh, at a friend's cottage for a few days. I haven't been away in years, so uh, I'm just doing some relaxing and uh, looking forward to chatting. Good. Well, I am happy that you are all relaxed and enjoying some quality time because after the past couple of years, we need that time to escape, to be with our friends, to be with nature. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. And for you that do not know, so Marcy is actually a resiliency coach and author, and she has published her own memoir. It is called The Good Stripper, a mom's memoir of lies, loss, and lap dances. Now she is a mother of two, and she has also been named Canada's top 100 health leaders per the for the past four years. So she has obviously been doing a lot of incredible things in her life, but it hasn't always been this way. Mm -hmm. And so Marcy, I really want to start out with your childhood. I know that we talked a little bit prior to getting this started. And I know that you had mentioned that you felt like you grew up in a fairly good home. You had a really good loving mom around you. And what did the rest kind of look, look like around you when it came to male figures? Well, that's the thing. When I look back at my childhood, I think I had a really good childhood. I feel like there were so many times when I was younger that I was really happy, um, really knew who I was, really confident mm-hmm. in who I was. Uh, it was myself, my older sister, my older brother, and our parents. And my mom and my older bro- brother were just my heroes. At the time, I wasn't close with my sister at all. She was seven years older. And we were yeah. just way too different. But uh, but my home, is, there was always music playing in my house. We were encouraged to just be whoever we were. It was great. And then what happened was when I was 10 years old, my, my parents got divorced. Okay. And at the time, this is back, this is 1980. So I was the first kid in my entire school mm-hmm. whose parents got divorced. That's the thing. <laughs> I mean, people were learning. I I met people years later who told me she only learned about divorce when she went home and asked her parents, what's divorce? Because this girl in my school. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so, so back then, so taboo, right? You really stood out. 
And it was, nobody knew how to deal with it. My yeah. school didn't know what to do with Father's Day. They didn't with mm-hmm. me. They just didn't. It was, so yeah, it was tough. Yeah. And my father, when he left, he left. There was no support, okay. nothing. And so that was difficult for sure for my mother to be raising these three children on her own. But I don't feel that that was traumatic for me. Yeah. I did remember, I do remember a very vivid memory of saying to my mother, at 10 years old, what is so bad about me that even my father doesn't want to know me? Mm. And my mother said, it's not you. She made it very clear that it wasn't me, that it was an issue with him. It was a deficit with him. Yeah. But, but I always say that when my father left, the four of us got closer. So Mm. we all kind of breathed a bit easier Mm -hmm. in some ways, at least emotionally. And as I said, my older brother was five years older and I, he was <laughs> the sun, the moon and the stars. I was a very opinionated kid, but whatever Billy said, I mean, I bought into it because he was just, he really was just the most loving. I, I always refer to him as the invisible armor that I wore out in the world mm. to protect you was your protector. He, yeah. he was the consummate big brother. He knew when to stand in front of me to protect me and when to stand behind me to encourage me to stand up for myself. And then my mother was also this, she would, I always say she my mother had a very hard life and yet she was love personified. She was the mom. She didn't try to be the cool mom. She was the mom who all of our friends would come to when they couldn't talk to their own parents about things. She was just this loving mom. So where my brother was the invisible armor I wore out in the world, my mom was my safe place to come home to that community all the time. Absolutely. It didn't matter. The world could be collapsing, but I had my mom and I knew I was safe and I was loved and I was protected. Mm-hmm. So I went through the, that, that first part of my life encouraged to speak out about things that I was passionate about, encouraged to have a voice and use it. But also I was into dancing and performing. And so I was encouraged to do that. My mom was great at telling me that I was beautiful, but more importantly, that what I had to say was important, Mm -hmm. that the things I had to say were interesting. So she did everything right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The turning point for me started when I was 17. And at that point, my brother got sick and he passed away. And that, you know, that was, thank you. That was tough on a lot of different levels. I think I knew he was sick. However, my mother tried really hard to protect me. And not know. And, and to sick, not right? know. Exactly. And also to protect herself. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember staying home from school quite a bit and going to the hospital and seeing him. But I think, I think if she had let me know how bad it was, it would be admitting it to herself. And that was just something that she could not it was let herself was to hold, hold on to for right. sure. And I was. I was literally in the middle of writing my final uh, English exam for high school when I was pulled out of class and taken to the office. Yeah. To let me know that he had died. So I was very unprepared, very unprepared. Of course. And so what happened was it hit me on so many different levels. So the first is you, you look back at when I was the first kid whose parents got divorced. Well, nobody had lost a sibling. Yeah. I had, maybe one or two friends who had lost a grandparent, wow. which is devastating enough, but uh, nobody had lost a sibling. So no, even adults didn't know what to do with me. I mean, oh. nobody knew how to deal with me. So that's quite isolating. But it was also where I felt that a, 
I learned at that age, at 17, you're supposed to feel invincible. You're supposed mm-hmm. to feel like you can do anything and you're safe. Whereas I felt the opposite. I realized, oh my God, if this, like my brother was very active. He was, you know, charming. He was the strongest person guy. that you knew. Right. And so if he could get sick and die, oh my Maybe gosh, possible. there's, there's no safe place in yeah. the world. So the moment before I heard he died was the last moment that I felt truly safe in the world. So there was that part that I was dealing with was feeling like my entire life is out of control because nothing made sense. Yeah. And then there was the feeling of worthiness where I felt that he was such a bright light in the world. And I felt that the world needed him more than it needed me. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to be here instead Yes. that I was going to have to really make an impact. I mean, I was going to have to be not normal, not average, not okay. okay. I had to be perfect. And at 17 years old, what does that even mean? Oh, I mean, I'll tell you what it means. It means you have to be beautiful and you have to be accepted by everyone and everyone has to think you're fantastic. And yeah. that ended up turning into an eating disorder yeah. for me, which is the the A, putting everything into, well, I'm not funny. I'm not interesting. I'm not super smart. So, okay, maybe I can try to make myself pretty. And what did pretty mean at that time? And still now in our screwed up society, it meant skinny enough. Yeah. And and back then it would have been like 90s, 2000s, right? And it's just like- No, it was before. It was 80s, 90s. So you had Cosmopolitan Magazine. You had the weight and the height. I mean, it wasn't what it is now, but it was- Still, the, all the crazy diets and you know, big yeah, the, time. There, it was, <laughs> it was no showing anything that was not perfect at that time. Exactly. Right? It was you were covered. Wow, I can't even imagine. Okay, please no. And and it was also just to let you know the extra pressure of that is that I saw myself becoming obsessed with what I was eating and my body. I saw it right away, even mm-hmm. though there weren't, there was no social media telling us about body positivity or any of that. I. I felt that I was getting really concerned with what I was eating and, and I knew it wasn't healthy. And I had been away that the first summer he died, he was supposed to be working at a, as a counselor at an overnight camp. And I was teaching dance that summer and I ended up going anyway without him and really had a good, healthy summer. I was around people who had known him. I was active and dancing all summer. I had never had a weight issue in my life. And got back that summer. This is just about three months after he passed away and went to my, my GP. So my family doctor and who had been his too. And I told him again, I was always active. My weight was very healthy. I was always one of the thinnest in my peer group. Um, and I had gone for my physical and I said to him, which is quite intuitive for a teenager who's just been through a huge trauma. I said, please don't tell me how much I weigh because I know I had gotten obsessed with it. And at this point I had started eating normally again. So I, I wasn't, you I wasn't good scale focused. Yeah. Uh, and I was healthy. I was physically healthy. I taught dance all summer. I was healthy and I didn't need to know, know the number. Yeah. This wasn't being irresponsible. I wasn't too thin. I wasn't too heavy. I was good. And I said, don't tell me because I feel myself getting obsessed and it, and I know it's negative and unhealthy. Unfortunately, the doctor that I went to didn't agree with the way I thought. And what he told me was, so he made me get on the scale and he said that 
medically speaking, I was healthy. But society is very thin. And if I wanted to fit into society, I would need to lose 10 pounds. No. And then he told me that if he were me, he wouldn't wear a bikini until he lost 10 pounds. And then he kept pointing at my stomach saying, what is that? Look at that. What is that? And then he made me write down everything I ate and every week come to him and bring him my list and then berate me if I ate something that he found unhealthy. And again, keep in mind, I was at a very healthy weight, very active, more active than most kids. So there was no, this was years later, I learned that it was complete negligence that he, I've had friends that went to see him after me who were heavier than me. He never said anything like that. He had an image of me personally Mm -hmm. that he wanted me to fit into. And he was trying to mold me into what he wanted me to look like. That's the thing is that you you brought up two really important things. One, the first one that I want to touch on is that you noticed yourself developing that obsession and that you knew that it was unhealthy. Now, I talk about obsession a lot. That's something that I specialize in with my coaching is, is helping people break out of those obsessions. And the thing is, is that we all know when we're doing it. We all know when it's getting to a point where it's unhealthy but we like the feeling of it because we feel in control. We feel Mm -hmm. protected. We feel like we have an identity. And those are the three largest factors as to why we continue to hold on to something that we know that we shouldn't. Now let's look at Marcy's story here. She chose to not continue with that, realizing that that wasn't serving her the way that she was, that she was holding on to that, trying to grieve from the trauma that she was going through and knowing that in order for her to progress, there's certain things that she needs to keep out of her hindsight, like her weight, because that wasn't something that she needed to focus on. She knew how to properly feed herself. But this is what worries me about society is that we put so much basis on professionals being perfect and knowing everything. And I just want to remind everybody that evil is everywhere. Evil is in the medical system. It's in the schooling. It's in the churches. It's everywhere. So if you want to just stereotype one area that there's only bad people in this one area or one political party or one whatever, you're wrong. They're everywhere. And doctors, like, first of all, I, I get really upset with how much we put on doctors, like how many medications are out there. You can't tell me that they've done all the testing on what it's like to mix all these medications and that the doctor knows how to properly prescribe them to everything, everybody. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, is, is the approach that they take with health overall. And especially with you being a fitness professional, I know that you're going to totally agree with this, that a lot of the time they're just looking to slap a prescription on it, or they are looking to get you to, um, an unhealthy point in your life and make you think that you're healthy. It's it's just such a mind fuck that I just Huge. want people to know that, you know, a lot of the time, the people who are leaning away from the medical systems have simply gone through really traumatic things like what Marcy went through. And it's hard to trust again because you put so much faith into somebody. And now listening to her story, 
I can just imagine where that took your eating disorder from there. So can you Mm -hmm. please tell me how that continued on, what you felt when you left that doctor's office? Like, were you so fucking confused? Like you're 17, you're like, hey, I know I I can't look at my weight. I'm becoming obsessed. Now the doctor just slapped me on the scale and now wants Mm -hmm. me to track everything and become even more obsessed with it. And like for him to bring that up about your swimsuit, like, I'm sorry, you should be fired. Like, period. There's no question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what was so devastating is it wasn't just somebody saying that to me. It was to me, it was this, it was a doctor. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. I mean, that was a whole other, not realizing that he's just a human being and extremely flawed. And, you know, his flaws came out later with a lot of things, but, but we do, we put so much respect or we don't, we're afraid to ask questions of our doctors. And And especially in this issue, and I know with a lot of issues, but there is a lot of weight bias and fat phobia in the medical profession. Yes. And so it's very easy for some to say, oh, you're feeling this? Well, it's probably your weight. And yeah. you just have to, instead of really doing the investigative work to see what is the Going problem. On, right. So when I heard that, it obviously completely rocked my world. I was also starting a major uh, theater school at that. I, during high school, I had auditioned for a theater school to go into, and I had gotten in and that was great. However, that's a lot of pressure Pressure too. So I'm going into this theater school and with this, now I've got this in my head. So I, it was devastating and I did write down everything and I go in and he would yell at me if I ate something he didn't agree with. And, and I remember, so he wanted me to lose 10 pounds. So I lost the 10 pounds and then I lost another 10 pounds and then I lost another 10 pounds. And I, so remember I didn't have to lose anything and then I lost 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I remember going in to see, I had this eating disorder, which is awful. I mean, there is to anybody listening, there is nothing good about it. And, Mm -hmm. and I make it very clear. There's a lot of shame attached to eating disorders. And it's very important to know that battling one, doesn't make you a bad person at all. Mm-hmm. The eating exactly. disorder is horrible, but people who battle them are not are not horrible at all. So it's some of sometimes it's the strongest people, mm-hmm. and that's why we have people say it's it's um, you know you're so dedicated. No, it's not dedicated. It's, it's just this perfectionist. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're really good at what we do, and unfortunately, exactly. some of those things aren't good for us. But but it really was this idea of okay, so I did I I didn't feel good enough at anything. I guess I'm pretty good at starving myself and being miserable. If I lose that, who the hell am I? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know what? I think that when it comes to eating disorders too, I want people to to really recognize, like when we were speaking about when you know that that obsession is bad is like you had just brought up, you're like, I don't like that I can't go around people and eat certain things. So you were hiding it from people. You were keeping it... <laughs> Yes and no. See, this is the thing. I just meant I, I that I wanted to eat stuff, and I'd like to uh, eat in private. Yeah, because you don't want people to sort of judge what you're eating. Eating, but but I actually didn't hide it because that's the normal thing. Like if you read about it, they'll say a lot of young girls will wear big clothes to hide yeah. their weight loss, or they'll move their food around. For me, it was kind of the opposite because I needed that reassurance. I needed people to say everybody to know you look too skinny or you're not yeah. eating because then I know okay. That's enough. Okay, I'm not eating. I'm doing I, 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 I'm right. And I, and I talk about it in my book, actually, at one point, my sister had a very, very hard time looking at me. She had mm-hmm. once walked into the bathroom and I got out of the shower and I was just bones and it was terrifying for her. So I had met her 
for at a mall one day and she said to me, it's so funny because she said, oh, you look good. And I panicked because <laughs> all she said was, you look good. But in my head, hold on. She usually thinks I look terrible because I'm too thin. So if she's telling me that I look, I look good. I must be heavy. Yes. And then, then I must, and that, so in my head immediately, uh, my, I mean, my chest, like my heart sunk. The, the anxiety was just intense. And my head is like, okay, what can I, what can I take out of my diet? Okay. What can I remove? What can I, how can I cut everything down? And she, ha- and then you spend the whole day cycling. I mean, that is think it. About that. Well, and she has no idea that that's even going no on idea. in your head. And she just thinks exactly. good, and that she just told you that she, you look good. And actually that's something that I see a lot with clients too, especially when they're going through the weight loss process, whether they're dealing with an eating disorder or not, when they are struggling with their body image issues, they feel like any of those comments of you look like you've lost weight. It just ends up sending them into a spiral. But the the thing that I think that we don't realize though is that it's not necessarily um um just the comment in and of itself. It's the fact that when we're insecure about something with ourselves, we will hear whatever we want to hear off of what somebody is saying. Like I yes. literally just had a discussion with a family member the other day and they heard something completely opposite come out of my mouth. And I was like, do you realize that you just heard your insecurity out of something that was absolutely nothing in what I said, but it was just like what you felt like you heard with your sister. It's funny. Cause that's when I, I had my program fit versus fiction. It was a body image workshop that I would take to schools, starting with kids in first grade. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I would work with also parents and teachers. And that's one thing. Look, there are a lot of parents who do unfortunately send terrible messages to their kids or they're dealing with their own weight issues and they do. However, it's, there's also, I said at the beginning, my mother did everything right. And I still ended up with an eating disorder. So I think yeah. What you just said is very important because what I would tell parents is if, if it's still possible to say the right thing and it will be misinterpreted exactly mm-hmm. like you just said. So you can't put, because especially I think with moms, we, we feel guilty about everything. If anything goes mm-hmm. wrong with our children, we blame ourselves. And I, and I don't think that that's healthy and, I, and it's certainly not necessary. And so to more to your point, you could say all the right things, but by the time it's like broken telephone through an eating disorder. By the time it gets translated through someone who's dealing with an eating disorder, it will sound completely different. So there is only so much that we can be afraid to say, Mm -hmm. you know, you, there's only so much. It's really up to that person to get the help that they need because we have to change the translator that's in our head. It's not about, it would be great if everybody always said the right thing. That's not going to happen, but it's being able to understand how we are hearing it because how we are That's hearing the thing something is it's, it's not about the saying the right thing it's about it, it's about that we want to hear things the way we want to hear it right mm-hmm. it's, it's not even just about people saying the right things and before we continue on with your story I just want to mention because you had said that a lot of the time it's the strongest people dealing with eating disorders and what I a lot of the time people who are taking on eating disorders feel like they're not enough they feel like they're not good at anything right a lot of the qualities that you mentioned prior but Like you said, people have said, how are you so consistent? How are you so dedicated? So what we need to understand is that we are consistent and we're dedicated to our destruction. 
Could you imagine exactly. consistent and dedicated towards building ourselves up in the right way? We do have all those skills ingrained in us already. We just need to flip the script. So I just want anybody listening who might be struggling with that to really recognize it's all about flipping the script. You got everything that you have right now. So Marcy, you have now had a tough summer <laughs> trying to um, make it through your doctor's requirements. You're down the 30 pounds. You said, fuck you. I don't think I'm going to stop here. And where does the story continue? So I'll tell you this, and I will give you, I'll give you everything in kind of a nutshell because, <laughs> because there's a lot and we'll be here a month if we break it down. We'll but, have to bring her back. <laughs> and it's crazy. So, so to hit on the major points, it's this. So that set me into such a spiral of that feeling of I went from this girl who wanted to take over and just give as much to the world as I could to wanting to be as small as possible. I had always thought I knew what I wanted to do in life, to perform and help people. And then I went to all of a sudden feeling like I couldn't do anything. So I quit the theater school. I would really spend most of my day in bed, um, just really trying to get through the day and make it through. And then I, I kind of got to this point where I'm like, no, I need to do something with myself. And I moved to a different city on my own and thought, okay, I need to take care of myself and, and sort of had to start, but I never got, I never dealt with the eating sort of, I just didn't. And you just can't, you can't move forward. I, I mm-hmm. say all the time that it's like trying to build a house on quicksand. Yes. You can't because you, your foundation, when your foundation is rocky, it's just not. And again, as much as my mom loved me and supported me, if you don't have it inside, mm-hmm. it's, it's not enough. Yeah. And so that set me up for the next few decades where I was vulnerable to outside sources and people who didn't have all of my best interests at heart. And life, <laughs> life continued to challenge me. So with things like, um, right after my brother died, um, my mom had gotten remarried to this great guy who ended up also having lived a double life. He was actually, I told us he was a caterer, but he ended up being a bank robber and was with us for a few years, got arrested. Big shock. Yes. Um, right after that, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh. So we're talking maybe a year and a half to two years that, that all of this, and it's just oh too much God. for my little break but then but then my mother got through it so then I moved and then from there I was trying to figure out who I was ended up getting married Mm -hmm. and thought okay maybe I had reservations but then I thought well you know maybe this is normal like maybe I just need something normal (laughs) it'll get better right it'll get better I need to do something traditional and normal um, and so I did that, but that, that just didn't fix everything. I was still dealing with my, with my eating disorder, but trying to find my place in the world. That and from here it was, wife, I'm sure. Exactly. But from here it was getting pregnant, having a miscarriage, getting pregnant, having a miscarriage, getting pregnant, really excited for this baby. And I had moved across the country and was on the phone with my mom three times a day because she was so excited about this baby and finding out that, um, I, I had my first ultrasound picture and I was going to fly home to show my mom. And I got a call from my sister saying, you need to come home right now. Mom's dying. And the same way she tried to protect me when my brother was sick, her cancer had come back. I knew it, but she told me she was doing much better than she was mm-hmm. because I had had the miscarriages. I was pregnant again. She didn't, she didn't want to risk stressing me out, but she didn't tell me what was going on. 
And so I literally flew home, got to say goodbye, show her my ultrasound picture, and she died the next day. So I'm pregnant now with after losing my mom. And never in a minute, like I never thought that I would not get a chance to be a mom with my mom. I didn't have two minutes as a mom with my mom. And that was devastating. Uh, my brother was gone. My sister and I weren't close. So it was, it was, was tough. All your people. And, and living on the other side of the country and, and having just moved there. And so it was very tough and I was very focused. And, and I mean, there's a story I tell a story in my book about how actually my mom's death saved my baby's life. There was a, a lesson that she taught me and it's pretty crazy, but he, I, he, there were some problems. And the only reason that he made it was because of something she told me before she died. No So way. she saved his life. Yeah. But then it was right after that, I got pregnant again. And this time <laughs> it was a complication that put me in the hospital for two months with oh a 25%, God. 25% chance of surviving, um, Mercy. and lost that baby. And was, I had to learn how to walk again, talk again, breathe again on my own, uh, with my 16 month old at home, got out of that <laughs> and moved back East and thought, okay, uh, we're going to, things are going <laughs> to, okay. I survived that. I gotta I'm going to be yeah. okay. Yeah. And I uh, decided to have another baby and, and had my second miracle baby. And that was great. And then it was right around that time when, and I don't get into this too much. I get into it very detailed in my book. Okay. But to say that at this point, my marriage changed at this okay. point, um, up until this point, there had been times before where my, my husband at the time had brought up the idea of opening up our marriage. Okay. And we'd had, we'd had a good sex life. There was no, I mean, it was, it, it wasn't it, even necessary. It, it really wasn't, but, uh, I, I wasn't into it. I was yeah. sort of a one-on-one kind of gal. No, and like most of us are. <laughs> it just, just wasn't, yeah. But again, we had a very healthy sex life. Yeah. So then when he brought it up again, uh, at this point, I went through what one therapist told me she called uh, traumatic overload. Okay. So it's, it would have been one thing after another, after another, after another, and not being able to process or process one thing at a time. So it was too much where my body had been through a lot physically Yeah. with the eating disorder, plus the illness, kidney failure, respiratory failure, major, major stuff that I went through. And and five pregnancies, two babies, yeah. but five pregnancies, wow. plus the emotional stuff of all the losses that I went through. So my there was something in me said, you can't anymore. Like you just can't yeah. take anymore. Yeah. And so when he brought it up again, I was feeling like, okay, so I'm not lovable. Yeah, I'm not so, enough. So maybe if people find me sexually attractive, well, that's something going back to when I lost my brother. Okay. Maybe yeah. this, this is where I'll find my worth. Yeah, and because I had lost my mom when I was 28 years old and she was so spectacular. And because I had almost died at 29 years old, I felt like, I don't know how much time I have left. Yeah. So I wanted every memory of my, of my kids' lives to be fantastic. I just wanted them to be the happiest kids that felt so loved every second. And so I made that my focus. So for them, I wanted them to feel loved. For me, I felt, and I missed the boat on that one. Like I felt I was loved when I had my mom and my brother. Yeah. I didn't anymore. So I wasn't loved anymore. So what can I do to find Where a way to love from? feel like, yeah. And I knew, I knew it wasn't love. 
-hmm. but I did feel this and I felt I almost dissociated. I felt like two different people. There was, Mm -hmm. there was this, it almost felt empowering at the same time as there was, it was also very shameful. And uh, it, it was, it was like, I would, I would suck up the air that was giving me this, this feeling of worthiness and it would last very briefly before I'd ha- I need to go back for another hit. And it ended up where I was living this double life of being the best mom that I could be. And my kids' friends would come over and I would create the obstacle courses at the park and the, yeah. the scavenger hunts and all that stuff. Um, but then when I wasn't with my kids, when they were at school, when they were in bed, I was either, either with my partner going to swinging swinger bars and yeah. strip clubs, or I say I, I, I went rogue because he was controlling in the sense of he wanted to share me, but he got to choose, choose how and who. And there was this rebellious part of me. And I always say, I wish the rebellious part of me would have said, this isn't okay. You deserve better and left. However, it wanted to be further, in mm-hmm. further into the madness. I got you. I also felt like, where was I going to go? I had nowhere to go. I had no yeah. family. I had nothing. So I was like, okay, so you, this is what you wanted. I'll yeah. show you. Oh yeah, then, I'll be the best of the best then. Oh right, and so unfortunately, I listen. I'm honest about the fact that I wasn't I wasn't choosy, and if yeah. somebody looked at me and and I knew they desired me, well, yeah. okay, like it was oh Let's okay, do this. yeah, and and because I was still battling my eating disorder, I at the time was going to a gym. Now I had two 24 hour gyms that I belonged to because one had the audacity to like close at Christmas. Um, so I would go and I would be the only one there at two in the morning, three in the morning, but I would, uh, so I would, I'd be working out like crazy and not eating. And so to keep my body the way I wanted it to be, but I met a trainer who had said, Oh, I can get you to look like a fitness model in a few weeks. And so I was like, Oh, okay. And, and I wasn't far from that anyway. Area, I'd always yeah. worked, I had a, a fitness background and so I knew what I was doing. But I was like, okay, but obviously you have to pay. And at the time, I'm a mother to toddlers. And so I was with my children. Yeah. So I, and I didn't, I felt guilty taking money from the household to pay for a trainer. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted the trainer to feed that eating disorder part of me. Of but I didn't want to, to take, the take financial money from, from the family. Yeah. So I thought, okay, so what's a job that I could do? <laughs> Where I'm home with my kids, trainer, but I could pay for the trainer. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started dancing because yeah. I'd been to strip bars with my husband before. You're a little uh, bit familiar and, now, and I, and I and I liked again. I would get attention, especially when you're a woman in a club like that. Of course. So it was a way to sort of satisfy the financial need with also that that deep Validation. feeling of unworthiness. Sure. Right. So there were times when I would be with my kids all day, put them into bed at night, drive to the strip club dance <laughs> and then well the, i'm laughing because I, I i was i'm guarantee i was the only dancer who never had a sip of alcohol not in the years that i was doing this not a sip of, not a drug i was the one oh it's 12 i have my protein shake in my locker that i gotta have i swear and then i'd get home around four i would change into my gym clothes go to the gym no have my workout then if i needed to go to the 24-hour grocery store to pick something up for the kids get home, take a shower, and then be up for the kids. So I would go a couple of days without sleeping. Oh, just to my. Keep, that's what I was going to ask going. next was like, so when was that sleep time? 
No, and I didn't. And it was, <sighs> and, but I was sure, I was sure that the moms of school thought I was on something because I was well, just like, go, go, how go. Did, how did you do that without any prescriptions, without any street it's drugs, without any trauma? You know, like, it's holy trauma. Like, yeah. It's amazing. Like, imagine yeah. how high strung, like how wired you would have been at that moment. I can't even imagine what it would have been like if somebody would have tried to slow you down because you were just, well, in that moment. I will tell you this. When you, when you said earlier, you're talking about how you know, you know, you're obsessed with something and we're so dedicated and people yeah. confuse the two. And I will tell you, there's one night that I, I write about that I remember very vividly. It was a night that I felt that I had eaten too much. It was a Sunday. It was about 11 o'clock at night, maybe midnight. And I decided, okay, I'm going to go to the gym, the 24 hour gym, but the 24 hour gym, it's driving distance, but I'm not going to waste the calories that I could burn on driving. So I walked to my gym. It's about an hour, at least an hour away at midnight on a Sunday did my two hour workout walking. There wasn't so bad walking back at three, four in the morning, terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying. And I came back and I remember thinking, Oh my God, what's going to, cause there were a lot of scary areas in there. And I thought, how will my husband explain to the kids if I'm attacked and I'm murdered on the street, how would he explain what mommy was doing out in the middle of the night? on her own. Like there's just no, and I remember getting home and going into my kids' rooms and just kissing them like while they were sleeping and hugging and thinking like, that was terrifying, but did it stop me from doing it again? Mm -mm. No, there was one night when I, one day when I was at the gym and I was sure I was having a heart attack, horrible pain in my chest, numbness in everything that you think of. And I thought I should go to the hospital. And then I thought, but what if I'm not having a heart attack? Like I'll stop my workout for nothing. So <laughs> you keep going. And then I did drive myself to the hospital and the doctor, I, I, oh, it was because I had taken fat burning pills. Oh yeah. And when I told the doctor expecting this big lecture, I remember he just looked at me and went, go be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Don't do yeah. that. But I did it again. And, so yeah. that's, that's the obsession. But um, going back to, to with my husband and, and promiscuity and all of that, you, you, it's what I said earlier where I was using it to fill myself up with the, the validation that I was missing. However, I felt like a very bad person when I was doing it. And so it was this horrible thing of, I would, I, I always say there's a very big connection between food and sex. There, there can be, I abused myself with both of them. Mm, I abused too. myself with food by either, by either restricting it. Yeah. I also overate. And mm-hmm. so I would, it was the pain. It was the pain of an empty stomach. It was also the pain of a stomach that's too full, oh. but it was pain. And I felt I deserved pain. Mm-hmm. And the same way that I was with men who I knew didn't think much of me, mm-hmm. but it was that, that, I felt, well, of course they don't because I'm not worth, I don't deserve respect. So I abused myself. There were times when I would be with someone sexually and then immediately binge on food yeah. because to, to prove to myself what a horrible person I was. Uh, yeah. And, and that's the thing And that. So I've talked about this on the podcast multiple times as well as the pleasure of being in pain and the way that we do that to ourselves as, as humans and that there is something so satisfying about being in that dark spot, which is why we continue to stay there. And I think that, you know, like, I don't even know if you really 
no, but you had mentioned about your identity and you're like, okay, so it didn't feel good while you were doing those things, but you also felt that it was an identity that you needed to hold on to. And I think that the missing factor in all of that is really self-love, right? Because in knowing who you are, it allows you to showcase your true values through your actions, right? It, it really, when you feel confident with yourself, that's how you know how to portray yourself mentally, physically, emotionally. But when you don't feel confident in yourself, you're lost in identities that don't even feel good. Like she was looking for an identity that really she had deep down inside that was that was always there, but she was looking for something else and it still didn't feel good. And I know that some of you guys listening, this is going to hit you so deep of bringing yourself back to that moment <clears throat> where you went to do something to put yourself in that pain, to feel like you had some sort of an identity, but you just felt worse. And that literally yeah. was the, my whole drinking experience. You know, I, I always drank to not be myself, but then I would always make so many mistakes that I would wake up the next day and be even more disgusted with who I was. And I would just go harder. And it was just the most vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And I did the same thing with men and I did the same thing with drugs. And when you're an addict, you really got to be careful because it doesn't matter if it's food. It doesn't matter if it's shopping, it can be nicotine. It can be a million different things, but you got to be careful because if you're not in a right mind state of knowing who you are, what you stand for, it's really easy to trickle down pathways that don't align with who you are, that will keep you caught in this confusion of thinking that you're somebody that you're not. And so mm -hmm. Marcy was stuck in her marriage, feeling like she wasn't valued there, that she needed to prove herself and be loved. And what I want people to understand too I think many of us have hooked up with men with, with too many people, like at the end of the day. And the reason why we've done that is because it is human nature to be loved, right? And even though she knew that going and hooking up with somebody wasn't going to be love, it's that high, it's that feeling, it's that oxytocin or whatever, right? That, that just gives you that bit of feeling like, hey, I'm valid. Hey, I'm wanted. So now you are in a position where you're making some money. You're now potentially seeing a trainer who's going to help you lose even more weight, right? Mm -hmm. And how did that story continue? Well, I'll say this, uh, just to touch on what you said, because I think it's a really important message for people who are listening. I think the problem too, is especially in the world we live in now, where every success, every achievement is broadcast everywhere. I think that we forget that we don't have to earn our place in the world. That we are valid without having to, we don't have to achieve something spectacular. You don't have to solve every problem. You don't have to get through every day without making any mistakes. Just being here, you are worthy of being happy and of being healthy. That is it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to earn. I thought I had to earn my place in the world. You don't. Mm -hmm. You're here for a reason. And it doesn't have to be huge at all. Yeah. Just, just by the people that you touch in your daily life, your friends, your family, and just by huge the little things that you play, that is huge. And so I think that's the problem too, is that we feel like we're not enough if we're not doing anything that's massive. You don't. Well, in you society, don't. society is changing too quickly. And you look at the generations changing over and over because, you know, my generation growing up, university was still really pushed. Getting married was still really pushed. 
but you look the generation prior and kids were pushed a lot younger. Now you look at this next generation in front of me and it's like, nobody gives a fuck about marriage. I don't even know if I'm having kids. Uh, It's totally Mm -hmm. okay if you don't have a university degree, but because Mm -hmm. we've all been brought up in different times, like we need to understand that there is no definition to what life should look like. And I think that the more that we can understand that there is no definition and it's okay to be different. And if you want to work a fruit stand, that's great. And people need to have janitors. Like literally, if we don't have these jobs that people look at as small or too little, like the world won't fucking flow. So we Uh need to have people who feel passionate about serving and I'm so grateful for them. Right. And so that's where we need to understand is that it's okay to be different. It's okay to live your own life. You don't need to go to university. You don't need to get married if you don't want to. And honestly, please stop pushing out children if you don't feel like you need them. <laughs> you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that we exactly, and you said it so well too, with every generation, there was this track that you're put on. I mean, you know, for mine too, it was you go to school, you date, you get married, you have kids. I mean, that's, that's it. You know, anything above that, then people kind of look at you and, and no matter what you do in life, society, social media says, just be you. And society says, no, not like that, because there will always be somebody who doesn't agree with what you do. But it's completely life changing when you realize it. This, I'm not put on this planet to make other people feel comfortable about my life choices. Mm-hmm. I have to be, I've, I have to know that what I'm doing is right for me and that I'm not trying to hurt anybody and that I'm trying to help. But if somebody doesn't like the way that I do that, that's okay. And, and so to answer your question about wh- what happened from there, the big first changing point to getting me out, because there were two, was, so I had gotten to the point where I felt that even though I was putting myself at risk in dangerous situations and that I knew was unhealthy for me, I was okay with that because again, I deserved whatever was going to happen. The slap in the face that happened to me that changed things was when, and I, and I, I won't say too much because I do talk about it in the book. It's, it's a day when I got this, I woke up to the recognition and the acknowledgement that my life was affecting other people. I had this real awakening where um, I was contacted by a few people that I had hurt without wanting to. Uh, and now it's, no it's not shocking you anymore because right. you were okay with hurting you, but you're not okay with hurting other people. Exactly. And I guess you, when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize mm-hmm. when you don't see the other people that you're affecting other people. Of and course. that was something that I could not handle. I was not okay with that. And uh, I told my husband at that minute that we had to stop everything, mm-hmm. like everything, because he knew there were no secrets. He he didn't know who I was with, but he knew that I was with other know. people. But, but he also, I, he wouldn't tell me not to, because I think then, because I was still doing stuff with him. So I yeah. think, I think he knew if he said, okay, you know, what you're doing is really unhealthy. I'd like you to stop. Then that would have meant stopping what he was getting also. And yeah. he didn't want that. So, um, so he wasn't thrilled that I wanted out of all of it, the swinging, yeah. the everything, but, but I knew I had to, and that was yeah. the first step. So nice. here's, here's where it seems like everything would be great because I got healthy. I got, went into uh, an eating disorder program and that was fantastic. And I had been on medication for chronic pain for my surgeries from being ill. I got off all of that. I, Amen. Beca- because uh, I went through the eating disorder treatment program, 
And I was very outspoken. And now we're going back to 2007-ish, maybe, where social media is just starting. Facebook was just starting. So again, there wasn't a lot of talk about body positivity and things uh, like yeah, that. No. There, wasn't any, there wasn't any. Any. Um, I came out of the program thinking, okay, I never want to... I've lived most of my life with this disorder. I don't want to talk about it anymore. And then realizing, unless I move to some remote island where there's nobody around, it's still everywhere. It's- and raising two children who were in grade school at the time... I hated the messages they were getting at school about health. It was all related to weight. And I was hearing their friends talk about dieting and I, I hated it. And I, I became very outspoken in the sense that I'd hear something on the radio. I didn't like that, mostly connecting kids and weight and things like that, that I thought was a dangerous message. And I would call, I'd see something on TV on some talk show and I didn't like it. And I would email them. Mm-hmm. I would write to a newspaper. I was, so I started getting, nobody was talking about it. So I would start being invited onto the shows to talk about it, to show a different perspective. And they'd say, nobody wants to talk about eating disorders. It's not glamorous. You know, there's not a lot of, so I was the only one. So I became the go-to whenever there was something in the news about weighing kids, about, you know, any kind of diet. What's so crazy is that like, you were actually prepared for this your whole life. Like when you look at it, like the divorce, (laughs) right. Being the first one with the divorce, being the first one with a sibling loss and now being the first one to want to talk about eating disorders. It's like, you had gone through all those taboo (laughs) topics that you're like, Hey, I'm okay with talking about things that people (laughs) usually keep in the closet. Cause that's been my whole life. It's so true. It's so true. That's it's crazy. So it is really, it is pretty amazing like that. So, um, yeah. And I, so, and then from there, I remember going into my kid's school one day and saying, I don't like the messages that they're getting. And I explained it. And, and the principal at the time said, okay, come in on Friday and talk to the eighth graders. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like I did, I, what? So I went in with a bristle board and some pictures and, and just talked and turns out they wanted to talk about it. They wanted I to bet. talk about the pressure. And one thing led to another and a student telling their parent, parent telling the principal at school where their sibling was, this just word of mouth. And I ended up getting asked to speak at a bunch of schools. And then I created this program called Fit Versus Fiction, where I would go in and I would do workshops and I would just tell stories and show pictures and play games with kids at different age levels um, to talk about the difference between physical appearance and physical fitness, about nice. what it really means to be fit and to be healthy and talk about self-esteem. And that was amazing. But here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I still had not dealt yeah. with everything that had happened. And on top of all the traumas, then I had the added bonus of all the stuff I did to get through my traumas. Yeah. So feeling that I was unworthy and my self-esteem being so low, that was hard enough. Then the promiscuity and the stripping and all this stuff that I did when I was just trying to survive, that carried shame. And then it was this feeling of, okay, so I'm going to be interviewed on the news about kids and body image, but what if somebody from my past sees it? Recognizes me. Right. And that was my fear. Mm-hmm. And not even again, not for me, but now I had these two children who I was terrified mm-hmm. that it would somehow negatively impact them. Right. I didn't want their friends mm-hmm. to know their mom used to dance. I didn't want their, their friends to know anything about mm-hmm. my past that could, that could embarrass them. So I was terrified, still not in a great marriage, 
I mean, we had times at the beginning that were great, but at this point, okay, so you guys still, were still feeling still in love together, but you guys changed the, your sex habits of how you were. Like, we were fine. We, we, you know what? We had gotten into this comfortable place of we. My kids are very active, very busy, and we're both very dedicated to them. So we had the kids to be the buffer. Yeah. Um. I still carried a lot of resentment for for stuff that he had done. Yeah. Um. So it was hard with but, no forgiveness. But I and... also felt. I also felt though, how lucky am I that I still have my family because I'm such, I still felt that I did terrible things. I still felt like this marriage is fine because, because I did bad things. Who else is going to want me? Yeah. And why should I even expect more? So that was what kept me there. And then a lot of people stuck for sure. I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. And so the shame, because I, I felt so ashamed about things in my past. I, it, I started to feel like, how can I talk to people about self-esteem when mine was slipping away again? Mm-hmm. And I got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. I got to a point where I felt like maybe I shouldn't be here anymore. Maybe the world would be better without me. Maybe I'm taking up space and resources that I don't deserve. Maybe my kids would be better off without me. And I lived with that for a couple of years at this point I was sleeping on the couch and I remember I would, uh, I would just be up all night just crying. And I remember I'd hear my kids who were a floor above getting up for school and I would jump up and move to the other side of the room. So they wouldn't see that I slept on the couch and I would drive them to school at this point. They were teenagers. And I would tell myself m- making this, this mental note, I had laugh about something, laugh about something. And Sing to something on the radio. So they don't know how sad you are. Make it every single day. Uh, and then it was it was too much, and it got to a point again where I thought I felt like maybe you only have a certain amount of strength when you're born, and I felt like I had been through it all, and I didn't have any more. And I thought, look, there are people that have passed that are waiting for me, so maybe I'll get the love there. And maybe the people I love here would be better off without me anyway. I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm not adding to society. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's my time to go. And I was in my 40s. Wow. And I'd had this interesting, unexpected conversation with a woman working at the grocery store on a day when I dropped my kids off at school, was going to pick up a bunch of stuff to just binge on and just cry until it was time to pick them up. And she made a comment, she worked there, about how there's always this light in my eyes. And I'm like, who is she talking to? <laughs> what? Yeah, not me. And I, it really, because I'm, I'm like, I'm going home to binge and watch Law & Order reruns. Like, I don't understand. So, it, it, but she was like, no, you're always full. And I'm like, no, I'm really tired. She's like, no, you're always so luminescent. And I'm like, it, mess, it really messed with me. I remember leaving and bawling because I thought, who is, what am I saying? What is she saying? What? And I remember getting home and I cried and I thought to myself, I, maybe I'm not done yet. Maybe there's, I don't see it and I don't feel it, but maybe there's still something there. Maybe there's a flicker of that spark. And I have to think if someone else sees it, someone who doesn't know me even, maybe it's worth fanning those flames a little bit and, and, and seeing. And that's, was the time that everything changed. 
So I think that this is really important to go back on what we had said about everybody having a purpose in life, no matter how big or how small. And that majority of our our major differences that we're going to make in our lifetime are the communication is the communication and the relationships that we have. And, you know, look at how much your life changed by one simple grocery shopper or store clerk that decided to say that to you. And she could have just kept that in her head and not said that. And then Mm -hmm. would you have still had that same thought when you got home? Fuck no, you would have binged and watched Law & Order, right? So that's the reality, guys, is that if you're feeling something when you're around somebody, please don't be shy to say it. You have no idea how much that could change somebody's life. And in Marcy's story, that literally changed her perspective on committing suicide. Like there, Mm -hmm. and that, that woman would have never known Never known because she simply sees the light and Marcy in what she can't see of herself. And that's what I want us to get from this story is that a lot of the time we don't see in ourselves all the amazing qualities that everybody else can see. And even when we have loving families that say the right things, that encourage us, there is a level of self-love that we need to develop ourselves because like Marcy mentioned, even with the most perfect parents or the perfect household or a great schooling years, you can still get into some shit when that boy Mm -hmm. is there because not everything that, so like we can't gain everything that we need from love from others. There has to be a level of, of what we intake from other people filter through and develop ourselves as to what is our, our values, our integrity, you know, all those fun little quirks about us and our perspective. And I think it's really important to make sure that we do listen to all perspectives so that you can filter it and pick what is best for you. Right. So that's where I think that Marcy, I'm just so glad that you are here to tell your story because when I look back on this podcast, we have covered so many important topics Mm -hmm. that people struggle with from eating disorders to not feeling adequate in their own lives, to not feeling adequate as a parent, to not feeling adequate in their relationship with their partner, right? There's there's a lot that you have been through in your life that I know can help other people in the same way that you've been helped along the way too in all the different experiences that you've been through. And so I do have one question here for you and it is a little bit off topic, but it actually is in regard to parenting. Because you had brought up about when your mom had passed that she had wanted to protect you again, right? She didn't want to tell you that the cancer was as bad as it was. And I want your opinion when you look back on the way that your mom protected you. And it, the, why I ask this is because my mom is very much the same way. And it, it it's hard on me sometimes because I wish that I could be included and help in certain ways, especially being an adult now. Um, And I understand the nurturing side being a parent, but do you wish that your mom was more expressive or, or how do you handle hard situations as a parent when it comes to that nurture, but still give enough information? Like how, how did you handle that of knowing how to do that as a parent now? It's very good question because <laughs> the first part I, I was prepared for. The second part, it, you made me realize something. So first, as far as how my mother handled it, I really absolutely wish she had shared more with me for several reasons. One, it, in trying to protect me, it wasn't protecting me. It wasn't giving me a chance to maybe somewhat prepare. I mean, you can't, I would have, 
I'm still devastated at her loss so many years later. I'd still be devastated, but the shock of it, I wasn't ready. And I think uh, I wish she would have brought me in for that. The other part is now as an adult, she died at 56, I'm 52. So we're much closer in age. And it saddens me that as close as we were, and we were close, I have letters from her saying that she feels that she can be herself with me and, and all of that. However, I feel like we were both cheated out of getting even closer because I would have liked to have been there for her in a right. way that she did. I mean, again, I was 28. It's different. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like she was trying. She never realized how great a mother she was. And I wish that she would have not been so concerned that she wasn't being good enough and, and let me see even more when she was feeling weaker or when she, yes. because that's only how, I mean, one thing I've learned is when I did see her, let's say, make mistakes, all it did was teach me that you can make mistakes as a mother and still be spectacular. So I, I, I feel a bit cheated that I couldn't be there for her and understand her the way I wish she, I know she could have used more support. And so I don't think it's helpful. Now, the flip side to that is even as you say that with my kids, I think I, I still do that. I still protect it. Not, not in the same way. I listen, I wrote a memoir about <laughs> stuff. So they're not, and they didn't know about it. And that was the thing there that they didn't know, but now they know a lot and, and they're not going to read it, but they know through other people and they know through what I've shared with them. Um, but there are certain things. I think it is a tough call as a mother and I'll only speak as a mother, that's yeah. my experience. But but there is this line of what's too much to tell them, yeah. and you know, because I know that I'm way more open than than some other people would be. But there are things that I I do feel still like I wish they knew. Like I think if they knew more about my story, then they would understand me more. And there's that balance of well, maybe they don't need to understand me more. But I know that I would have wanted to understand my mother more. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's a tough thing because it also depends on the child. Some right. some kids don't want to know no. more. So so it is, it's a tough thing. I will say that I'm glad I protected them when they were little. Because one thing, when I did tell them when they were 20, in their early, early 20s, that the book was coming out. And they didn't know I'd ever dance. They didn't know a lot of things. And as soon as I told them, their reaction wasn't, oh my God, how I didn't know what it was going to be. But it wasn't, it, what they said was, okay. When my younger son was like, how long ago was it? Like over 15? What? I don't, it doesn't bother me. Eternity and ago, right? Yeah. He was like, what? You know, and, and my older son had said, well, you keep saying that you made these mistakes, but, and you, but you want us to have the perfect lives. He goes, so, but that's how we feel. So if we feel like we had a great childhood, maybe you didn't make mistakes. Like I was so hard on myself. And even my younger son by saying, how, I don't, when was this? It's because they didn't know. It's not like I told them and they went, oh, that's why you disappeared for weeks. I yeah. was there. Yeah, so that's the thing. They did it. They had no, no idea. idea what was going on behind the scenes. And I'm glad about that. They didn't need to know that. No. Now, as adults, as adults, I think one of the reasons why I left my marriage was because, look, it wasn't abusive. It wasn't, it, it, uh, that was another thing we started to say to ourselves. It's not that bad. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be that bad to deserve better. Yeah. But I, I, 
I don't like that they were seeing me sad and stressed Mm -hmm. and angry. That's not who I am. That's That's not the type of person that I am. And I didn't want them to remember me when I'm gone as being, oh, mom, she was always sad and stressed. So I knew that I had to get out of that situation. In a order partner to is bringing out those qualities in you that you know aren't your qualities. Like that's that's what she's saying by it doesn't have to be terrible to know that you deserve better. Like if you're bringing right. out qualities of yourself that you don't like, because I know that people are in control of their emotions, but there are people who trigger you. And when you're with that person day in and day out, there's only so much damn self-control that you can have to still try to be happy, right? <laughs> right. Or sometimes you only see the reaction. You don't see what created that reaction. Exactly. You know, you might see somebody is reacting to the fifth time somebody said something and yeah. you're just seeing their reaction. And you don't know. So I constantly try to protect them. And, and so it, it, it's, it's a tough thing, but I do think that we need to give our kids a little bit more credit depending on their age, depepending on the child as, a, as individuals. But I do think that there's nothing, if there's one thing that writing and releasing this book has taught me, it's that keeping things inside and not sharing who we are, it, it doesn't protect us. Mm-hmm. It keeps us from connecting. I thought when I released my story that people would disconnect from me and turn their backs on me. Instead, people came to me and said, oh my God, I had no idea. This is what I'm going through. It's the truths that connect us. And so it's very important to be as real and as authentic as we can be and not worry about us disappointing people. I mean, I'm I'm very happy to disappoint other people's expectations of me. Me too. That's fine. a really good place to be because when you're confident with yourself, you know that you align with your values and your actions. And it's okay if you piss people off because you know that what you're doing is true to your identity. So that's where it doesn't, that's where you don't get hurt anymore if somebody gets offended because you know that they're not the kind of person who needs to be around you. So I think that that's amazing. Now, what I want to finish off this podcast is I want you to speak directly to the mother who's in the kitchen, running from the edge of the couch, trying to get a laugh out while the kids are coming downstairs to pretend like she wasn't sleeping on the couch that day. The mom that has no emotion left, she's so fucking tired, but she's trying to sing along in the car, even though she just wants to cry. The kids have no idea what's going on in her life. What would you say to her right now? What would you say to that woman? You deserve to be happy. And you deserve to be healthy. And I think, I it, depending on the situation, I don't know what that means as far as if it means talking to a friend, talking to a therapist, getting out of a relationship, finding a, a course online. I mean, you deserve to be happy. And you need to take one little step, one tiny little step that is just for you because you are not doing anybody any service by keeping yourself down it, you are, that's the thing. I was, I was trying to, I was hiding all of that to protect my kids. Meanwhile, I'm robbing them of the mother that they could have. And so in not getting the help that, that you need, you are robbing the people around you from getting to know the real you. So it's not even for you. It's for you and for everybody else. Give everyone, give everyone the chance to get to know you, but give yourself a chance to figure out who that is. 
I love how you said that because I think that it's so easy for us to not feed ourselves, not care about ourselves, you know, put ourselves last and put everybody else first. And so in that, it's like, okay, you know what? If you're not going to look after you, that's okay. It's going to allow everybody else to get to know the real you. So do it for that. You're not going to do it for yourself. That is amazing. So Marcy, we are going to be tagging your book in the notes here because everybody's going to want to read it at this point. Like, I just can't wait to get my hands on it. Let us know though, how can we get in contact with you to either follow your content or your content and, or to get in contact uh, for your resiliency coaching? Because I think a lot of people would benefit from that. And if you could just slightly go into what that really covers, just in case people aren't familiar with what that really means. Sure. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm kind of all over social media. Um, but I'm kind of silly that way, but, um, <laughs> for my coaching, it's just my, it's marcywarhaft.com, uh, for my book, the good stripper.com. Uh, but it's also, it's an, it's Kindle, it's paperback. It's an audio book now with me reading it. Um, and so they can contact me through any of those, those sites, but for the resiliency coaching. So I'm the resiliency rebel because I don't see things in the same way as other people do that. I've never seen things traditionally. And I always used to think that was a problem and it's not, it's just the way that I am. So I'm very anti-cliche. I am not somebody who is going to tell you that everything happens for a reason. I'm not going to tell you that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that your trauma has made you who you are. I believe your resiliency made you who you are. I think your, your, your trauma made you prove it, but your resiliency was always there. Uh, I had somebody describe, actually, she said she described what I do as, I don't tell you, I don't tell you how to live your life. I just help you see that you have the ability to do that. And I, and I help you figure out how, so there's just no bullshit. I'm just, I'm, I'm too tired. No wonder we get along so well. eh? it (laughs) It just doesn't work. So it's when, it's when you, when you've tried everything traditional and, it just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate Nothing's with you. Yeah. And sometimes you need to see things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And, and I just, I, the same I help thing you and it. it's not working. You need to contact Marcy. Okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Beautiful. That's great. And then are you on Instagram or anything like that? Yes. At TikTok, Instagram, uh, okay. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, but you'll see, I do a lot of dancing and I'm quite, mm-hmm. I always say I, I've cried enough tears in my life that when I want to dance, I dance. I literally oh, walk down the street that. and dance. I was walking down the street the other day and a stranger passed by me and he said, you're the dancing lady. I'm like, I guess I am. You're the, you're <laughs> the lady that people point out in their car. There she is again. But way to Absolutely. bring so much joy to people's day. And I think that, you know, actually I want to sign this off with a really good in- word of encouragement is participation participate in life. Okay. Participate in conversations. If you're out watching a a play, make sure that you're clapping. If somebody is doing a performance and they're asking you to yell, participate. We need participation in order for this world to go round. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of us stand back from volunteering, but we love to go to events and, you know, all of these different things. And I think that watching people like Marcy lead her life with joy, be the person on the side of the street that is doing the dancing and making everybody laugh is just great. And that is her participating in life. So don't be shy to participate in life. And Marcy, thank you so much for your story. I honestly think that we need to have you on again. I love your perspective. I've had (laughs) so so much much fun chatting. 
Thank you so much. No, for sure. We'll do it again. There's so much more. <laughs> I can just imagine you're like an onion. It's just like layer after layer. So that's great. So guys, make sure that you go and check out Marcy. And thank you so much for tuning in to another podcast. You know that I will catch you next fucking Monday. And that's another honest episode dropped. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Naked in Truth, where we come together every Monday morning to set the week off with intention. Don't forget to head over to our Instagram page at Naked in Truth Podcast to stay up to date on future episodes, guest speakers, and other kick-ass info that can help you continue to create your impact. And you know that reviews are so valuable when it comes to building a community of like-minded people. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please drop some love on Apple Podcast Reviews and share this episode with someone who you think needs it. Thank you guys so much again for tuning into today's episode. I'll catch you next Monday. And don't forget, love always wins.